Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Good to see you. You too. We're back. So getting right into it. In the recent months, studies have shown that teen mental health is in crisis in the U.S. Of course, not a surprise to us. No. I mean, the teenage year is presenting such challenges, even on the best day. We've known for decades that this age group can really struggle with their mental health, but a recent CDC survey added to the evidence that teen mental health is in crisis with particularly concerning numbers surrounding teen girls. The survey found that one in three high school girls in the U.S. have seriously considered attempting suicide and more than half reported feeling sad or hopeless. And by contrast, 14% of high school boys told the survey that they had seriously considered attempting suicide, up from 13% in 2011. I mean, so serious. We can never learn enough on how to handle Crazy these situations. I know. And today we have, uh, we're lucky enough to have a guest to talk about all of this with Kayla McGinnis, Director of Business Development at Montrose Behavioral Health Hospital in Chicago. She carries experience in crisis intervention, case management, admissions counseling, mental health counseling, and also the marketing and business side of the mental health medical field. Welcome, Kayla. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you both thinking about Montrose as we, you know, talk about this very important topic that I think um, has been around for decades, but I'm glad that we're really kind of spotlighting it across the nation currently. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like when all of a sudden, you know, the beginning of March really must be when that CDC survey came out. And, you know, every day on the news that week, they were acting like, you know, some of the reports kind of were saying this is a shocking statistic. And and I was thinking, you know, Julie and I and many of our colleagues were so, and, and yourself, I'm, I'm sure, so dipped in this for years and years. I was thinking, this is no surprise. I mean, it's been a crisis for, you know, for, for so many decades, I can't even remember. But but it's great to know that now this is coming to, you know, the news and to spotlight. The, top, the spotlight and top priority in our country. And that's the that's the good news of this. Um, I think some coming from the pandemic, too, you know, like it's, it's just bringing it to the top of conversation. Of course. Before we get started, I always like to ask our guests, how did you get into this business? Oh goodness. Um, I've always been a helper by nature. And when I went, when I went to college, I was like, I'm going to go for finance. And then I got into economics and I was like, "Mm, I don't think I really want to do this. And one of my, um, uh, well roommates, but she had a classmate and she's like, you need to come meet my professor. And he was an ex DEA agent. And, um, I just had a conversation with him and I just fell in love with that the little criminal side of it to a degree, but that helping side of social work, counseling. And so my initial degree is in criminology, um, which is because I find it really fascinating to learn how like people's experiences and the things that they go through, how it shapes them, but also those psychological and chemical imbalances uh, that we talk about in the mental health field. So often it really contributes to so many things that people um, end up doing or where they find themselves in life. And then um, I went on to get um, my AO in Wisconsin is called AODA and here it's called CADC, which is another drug um, certificate so that you can specialize in substance treatment. And then when I came down to Illinois, I kind of just expanded through mental health and my work um, the, that I did at Gateway Foundation and just kind of continued to just roll, um, just adding more and more uh, education um, you're doing lots and lots of continuing education and things of that nature, presenting myself, um, but always just trying to learn more and do better in this field. So it's kind of been an evolution, um, but the marketing side of it allows me to just to promote mental health services, not just my own, but all the places in which I know people call me for resources all the time. And really, it's just become a passion to um, help someone because everybody needs some support. Yeah. Of course. So, so the place you're at now, and you know, and we're looking, you know, people from all over the country, country listening, um, that is primarily inpatient, or are you, are, are you dealing with uh, day programs? So right now it's we. So we have three buildings. So we do inpatient psychiatric services for children and adolescents, which is five to seventeen. Our outpatient building is currently finishing its renovation, so we're hopeful. 
that in June, you guys will see us announce um, our open house and service line that will be available to adults and adolescents in June. And then we have our adult campus that'll be opening um, early next year wow. as again, they're still finishing renovations. They gutted it, um, took the, you know, replaced the windows, all those things that are sometimes needed in those older historic Chicago buildings. So we will be providing from the inpatient level of care to the day program, to intensive outpatient and looking then at an aftercare program as well. So we won't carry a residential line currently, but we'll work with community providers such as Rosecrans, Abraxas, Rogers, um, SunCloud, a lot of different organizations that have that residential level of care to ensure that we can um, offer that full continuum should that be needed. So you're you're dealing with inpatient hospitalization on an acute level. In other right. words, how many days is that? Five um, to 12 or what is, what is the Sure story? about that. It depends. We've seen some people say around five to seven. We've seen some say over 12. So um, 12 is probably the, the sweet spot for the child and adolescents. You know, the longer we can get them in that stabilizing um, portion of their early recovery or early, um, you know, mental health processing, that's better because then they can get stabilized on some meds. Um, you know, get, gain some coping skills, process some things maybe that are going on at home or school, work with the schools, work with the families to really kind of set that roadmap up. What does treatment look like after treatment, right? Because it doesn't stop when they leave us. It's actually kind of just beginning when they leave us because we know that there's management, there's um, continuation of school, family issues in the home will continue. But then getting to the outpatient level of care which we see a lot of young folks struggle with. Um, and that can be, there's a variety of reasons in which we see those children and adolescents struggle. Parents may not have the ability to get them there. Insurance lapses, um, Walgreens is out of their medication. Um, something happens at school. because Just because the kids come to us and go back, those environments relatively almost always stay the same. Yeah. We don't see a lot of things changing in those external environments, especially school. Um, and we get a lot of, you know, patients that come in and it's, it's bullying, it's the pressure. Um, I have to get the highest grade in the class. I have to have a 4.0. I have to have straight A's. I have to be the best on the basketball team. There are some immense pressures that a lot of the, the, the patients and the adolescents that we're seeing are experiencing. And then on the children's side of it, we see a lot of kids who parents might be struggling with their own mental health, right? You know, because the adults of the United States and in these homes are not absent of those things either. However, maybe mom and dad or the caregiver, whoever, whomever that might be, are struggling with their own things. Therefore, might be not modeling the best coping skills, the best solution-focused opportunities and things like that. And so we see some of those things really continue to impact and drive um, this, you know, I don't want to call it sickness, but like the sickness that does exist within those units. You know, I have a, I have a question. Um, I think a lot of parents struggle with the idea of bringing their child into inpatient. Now, my son was put inpatient pretty young. I think youngest was 12. I think that's where we started. It, it should have been younger, but at the time, I think I was just very uneducated. So for parents listening, like, what does it look like? Because it seems so scary. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. So one of the things that, you know, what it looks it looks scary, but we always tell families or prospective families, go on our website, we have pictures up, ask us for a tour. We can set up tours when kids aren't on the unit. So we have two units, actually well, three um, that leave for, they all go to lunch. And then in the morning, we have some opportunities when two of the units are off site or off, off their unit. So we can get parents up there while they're in the cafeteria. And then, you know, that way they can kind of see what it looks like, but it is scary because it's locked, right? We have kids who are like, I can't, like you have to get buzzed into the building. Um, and I think what parents need, you know, the, my biggest thing is like, I always say safety first, mm -hmm. just know that this, the lock, the, the locks and the badges and the kit, the pin pads that we all utilize it's for safety because we do have children and adolescents that are coming in that are severely psychiatrically ill. They're ill. Um, they want to hurt themselves. We want to hurt others, or they're just at that point where like, they feel like life's given up on them. So they want to give up on life. And so the the severe nature of our building is strictly to provide everybody with a safe space to be um, and so when they do come in 
when parents come in, they can come in multiple ways, right? They can be, they can come from an emergency room um, where the emergency room calls us and we do all that triaging and we accept the patient and the ambulance brings them. The parents can follow them, um, arrive later, what, what have you. They can walk in or they can call us and say, hey, I'm going to bring Johnny in. I'll be there in an hour or I'm going to bring him at five o'clock or can I come tomorrow morning at eight? So those are really the three ways that we see when they come in. They'll do some basic paperwork and then we'll take them back to one of our assessment rooms and we'll do an interview with the family, whomever comes and the patient. We'll have the, the parents or the caregiver leave and then we can um, speak to the patient by themselves while someone else is then speaking with the caregiver just to kind of get a really good picture of what's going on. Kids under report, they're scared or they overreport because they're, they, they just want to be anywhere but home, right? And so we kind of see... Um, a lot of different things along that spectrum, but then we'll also go as far as calling the school if they're if the school is referring. Um, the things of that nature. Well, who's your primary therapist? Who's your psychiatrist? We'll get all of that information to provide us with a good understanding of what's happening, and then really looking at that ASAM criteria, which is how we navigate that level of care system. Right? We don't want to put someone in an inpatient setting who might be okay in a PHP level because the things that they're experiencing aren't as severe as maybe mom thought, right? Because we had one mom who um, brought their child in because that person born one of the other genders identified as the other. And while we appreciate the mom not knowing what to do, we had to educate her and this isn't a mental health crisis. So then we were able to connect that family with a counselor who focused on gender, gender, identity and things of that nature. And so a lot of what we do is also, while we're assessing, we're also educating. Yes, um, so, so it's not like you would take any, you know, any referral coming in. You, you nope. first take it and assess Correct. it, interview the parents and the child mm -hmm. and, and decide. Correct, yep. And you know, and we, we run into things too, where like we'll have a school that we'll send and they, because of what they're seeing at school, but when the patient's in front of us, they're denying anything and so when we're assessing we look at the criteria we're recommending outpatient we've had a couple of schools be like i don't understand and so then we again go back in that education like here's here's what was expressed to us here's what we observed here's what the mom said here's what johnny said and we look at all of those pieces um and you know just again releases of information to ensure that we can communicate back and forth but also say hey johnny here's what your guidance counselor at school is saying or here's what your dean is sharing with us and here are the things that are happening at school that might not put you in the best place to be successful or safe, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, kids, are act, they act out differently for different reasons. Um, but we, again, look at all those pieces and we don't just admit anybody that walks in the door because that would be inappropriate. Um, so we're really excited about the outpatient coming because we do have a lot of kids that come to us and we're like, they've never had an inpatient, mom's at their wits on maybe, um, but we know that Johnny might do really well with a day program. So medication management in a day program. And so that least restrictive environment is al always clinically indicated. Um, and sometimes the least, you know, the, the highest level is inpatient and that's where they need to be. So do you, um, when you keep talking about the schools, you know, at times dealing with the guidance counselor, I know it's just certain circumstances. Do you also, if it's something like a 12 day stay, do you coordinate at times with schools so that the kids aren't missing out yep. on assignments like uh yep. somehow is there a liaison at times so that yes school we have an inpatient continue? educator and I, and I think a lot of hospitals um especially you know there's a lot like there's a lot of us well not a lot but a decent amount of us in the chicagoland area but yes we coordinate with the schools similar to what the residential programs do we want to know what are the problems at school first of all what are they experiencing what are what are the unsafe behaviors what are the things that we need to, to address from a school's perspective, but then also from the student's perspective, but then where are they at? How does Johnny stay on track to graduate? How does Johnny make sure that he goes from eighth grade to ninth grade? Um, they they do an hour of schoolwork every day and it varies um, per institution. Uh, you'll see them do a little more schoolwork when in a residential setting because there's more time, um, but they're doing a lot of different therapies throughout the day, but yes, we do interface with the schools frequently. Um, some want it daily, some want it bi-weekly, some want it when they come and when they're about to leave. So we kind of work with those institutions on how often they'd like us to communicate. Um, and then also that discharge planning that includes their safety plan. 
medication list in their overall discharge plan. So the school is aware Johnny's leaving every Tuesday and Thursday at two o'clock instead of at 2.30 because he's got group at 2.30 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so really just helping them understand what that student will be doing post-discharge from us and the school do their best to help engage. We have one school up north, um, Adelaide Stevenson, and they have a team and their team is like, call us, we have resources. Do not struggle with what to do with the, the students when, when they're discharged planning because we have just made it our mission to have internal resources at the school so they don't have to miss any classes. They don't have to leave school early to get some of those things where they have on-site counselors, they have on-site you know, Rosecrans within the schools. Um, I know that Trilogy is within the schools. There's just a, Omni is within the schools. So they have a lot of mental health and treatment providers in the schools allowing um you know access to care in those you know education systems which is exciting um we're seeing it more and more so that's i mean we do our due diligence to know where everybody has resources and then get those students connected as well as we can and oh sorry not not to not to i just want to piggyback off of that i think oftentimes when parents bring their kid into inpatient it, it becomes very overwhelming and then you're worried about school and schoolwork from my personal experience, sometimes you have to worry about the kid's stability before you can worry about the kid's schoolwork. I yep. think, you know, oftentimes we get we get mixed up in both. And I just want to point that out, like, don't put too much pressure on yourself that the kid completes his homework assignments, he or she, you know, when they are struggling so much, let's get their mental health better. And then they will do better in school, we can we can always catch up on that. So yes. on that, I mean, don't, I would assume then that your social workers and your staff would look at a child, each individual thinking, okay, this, we're not going to bring in the schoolwork now. We're going to, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I would, is that just a yep. routine part of the whole inpatient just to yeah. make, you know, not to force the issue of school, but to, if somebody really is, is struggling mentally to first yes. set. Well, a lot of what we see, especially with the adolescent, that 12 to 17, a lot of it is related to school. And so we don't necessarily push the, oh, you have to do your math today, or you have a history test when you get back, you know, in three weeks. But it's, oh, um, what is causing the anxiety at school? What is causing the depression? Um, you know, when, when we have that child that says, if you let me out of your sight, Miss Nancy, I'm jumping over this balcony. And that's real and true. And that's, you know, that we have to take that for what it is. And so how did that, you know, we have to talk about the school part of it. And so our inpatient educator also, he's one of the people, he runs group, I think an hour a day, just to talk about that piece of their world. Um, because kids are spending three quarters of their year in an education facility, right? And so um, that's really something, it's not necessarily about the schoolwork, but really addressing what's happening at school. Um, who do you have friends? Who do you identify with? What are the things that you need at school to be a little more successful? Um, I, well, I, I, I'm not taking my meds all the time because I forget to take them to school. So now we can work with the nurse to make sure that there's meds at home and there's meds at school. And, and also, of that nature. And also structured to the day. I mean, there's a full day to fill with, you know, something for these kids to do. Correct. But um, so schoolwork for some of that. What about um, group therapy? I've always said to parents calling that that is one of the biggest pluses of of any kind of inpatient hospitalization. Actually, even you know, for adults down to the youngest of of a person coming in, do you do you still do you feel like as though that's a big strength of your programming and the programming? You know, we're speaking again to a national audience. Um, our behind our door listeners are are all over the country this is mm -hmm. um usually a protocol for for inpatient is that what your experience yeah. is yeah i mean if you don't do group therapy and inpatient you're, you wouldn't be doing anything right you'll get you know the hour or two between a family session but what do you do with the other amounts of time during the day so and it's some of what we do is just teaching basic skills so in the morning, they're going to get up and they're going to do their morning hygiene and they're going to take their morning medication should they have them. And they're going to get ready for breakfast and then they're going to go to breakfast. They're going to do those things. So we talk about, you know, those daily living skills sometimes that maybe weren't taught. How do you make your bed? How do you pick out clothing? 
Um, what do you do in the morning when you don't feel like getting up and life seems really rough today? Because we know those days are going to happen outside of our care. So what, how are we putting them in the best position to like, hey, when I don't feel like getting up and taking a shower, that's exactly when I need to get up and take a shower. And so we move through the day like that after breakfast, so they can go back to their room, brush their teeth, make sure that they've gotten everything ready for the day. And then they're going to go into their first group and it's going to be um, the process group. Let's talk about our feelings. There's going to be some didactic. There's going to be some psychoeducation. There's going to be some, uh, you know, music group and movement therapy and just different things for the kids to try and utilize so they can build up those coping skills, the, the, the education and the knowledge to empower themselves going forward. So group therapy is a huge part because you learn from one another, um, you know, because sometimes like that, that kid that's coming in for the first time is sitting next to the kid who maybe this is his fifth or sixth treatment episode. And they're like, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want that to be my path in life. I don't want that to happen. So maybe talking to that other patient saying, Hey, wow, like, you know, what's kind of happened, but then also learning empathy. I might've had seven or eight treatment episodes to year one, Nancy, because of what I'm experiencing at home or the instability that, you know, unfortunately was just the path that was for me in my life because kids don't have control of that. And so there's a lot of that type of growth and um, maturing happening just by interfacing with their peers, um, you know? And so, and then we, you know, everybody gets, they just get to learn about each other. Like, where are you from? What have, what have you done in your life? Um, things of that nature. Where have you gone to treatment before? I really did this and I didn't like it, right? Those types of things. Yes, and you know, feeling that they're not alone, which mm -hmm. is huge, mm -hmm. a huge relief to any individual of any age when they're struggling, just yeah. to be able to relate. Um, and as far as, uh, you know, not jumping ahead too much, but looking at parents coming in, uh, first of all, I was going to say parents coming in to participate in group or whatever kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. I feel like something that really shocks parents that, um, you know, they should take to just being fact and not scary is the limited hours of visiting. Um, this across the board, I think any inpatient in the country has, you know, someone will think they can come visit anytime, like a hospital. What are your visiting hours, for example? So right now they vary. Um, so we have, we have three groups of parents or caregivers. We have ones that drop them off and say, we'll catch you on the flip side. Johnny's safe. I need yeah. a break. Call me when you need me. So we have a group of oh, caregivers that say that to us. We have the group in the middle that's like, you know, FaceTime is good. Send me a Zoom link. You know, let me know, you know, that I'll see them virtually. And then we have the other parents that are saying, hey, I know there's some restrictions, but there's no way that my child can be there an average from five to 12 days. And I'm not able to hug my child or mm -hmm. see my child. So we work with the families that need that. Um, we had one the other day that said, hey, we're not asking for like every day, but could we come twice a week for 30 minutes just to provide that physical support mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, fix some things. And so we appreciate everybody where they're at, the ones that are in that far left bucket where, where they don't want to do much of anything. We really have to reel them in. We're calling more often. Our physicians are calling. We're doing maybe mini family sessions or parenting classes. Like, Hey, how do we increase your engagement and um, your child's belief that you are invested in their well-being? And then the ones in the middle, it, I think sometimes it's just, you know, it's a lot. They have other kids at home, but we do have mm, lots of iPads coming out of our ears so we can do those virtual options for anybody, whether it's Zoom, um, WhatsApp, even um, FaceTime because it's an Apple product. So but that's with, also limited. That's also, they can't um, do that all day. Well, there's phone times throughout the day. So we work with the kids like now there was one young lady who her aunt was her caregiver, but aunt worked um, weird hours. And so we were, we just, one of the times was like at seven 30 in the morning. And so we get very creative and that virtual component allows us to do so. But outside of that, they also have just a regular phone where they can call during the phone times and speak. And then we can use those, the, the iPads for those family sessions, or if there's a need for like the one young lady, her dog was passing and that's not something that we can just, you know, let her out of inpatient for the day. So we were able to allow her to FaceTime with her mom at the vet and, you know, and then just help her process through that grief. And so 
again, that virtual component, while I think some people use it maybe too much um, and they disengage of it, we, it, it has saved um, some of our patients in many ways on a, on a time or two. Yeah. I think that that part is so important that parents engage. They have to, yeah. I, and I get the whole, I would need a break thing because I felt like mm-hmm. that was the only time I slept was when my son was inpatient. But, mm-hmm. you know, on the other hand, I was his lifeline. It was just he and I. Yeah. So um, we needed the contact. And unfortunately, I ran into a lot of roadblocks with other yes. facilities that were not so accommodating and they didn't have Zoom back then or FaceTime. Um so it was quite it was quite a struggle. And then it was limited to whom could visit. Yeah. You know, because in my situation, my parents were super involved in his life. And, you know, they were like, Grandparents Day is on Sunday. And I'm like, Well, they're with him every day. We can't just mm-hmm. limit it to Sunday. And if I can't be here, they should be here. So right. yep. I'm, I'm glad that's yeah, we, we have that list of, you know, approved individuals mm-hmm. because if there's somebody that's inappropriate, whether that's a the negative peer. Um, a toxic family member, an abusive family member, um, things of that nature. So we do have, you know, there are some safeguards in place, but no, I agree with you. Family involvement. um, And, you know, and again, sometimes kids struggle because the people they call family might be the people causing the most pain. So, you know, we loved ones, friend, like, you know, you got to look at what, what is their language, right? What, what do they identify with as far as those words? Um, Because we had one girl um, she said, I don't want my mom on my list. She's the reason I'm in here. Oh, wow. She makes me suicidal. She's the reason that my depression is this bad. And so then when the mom was standing outside one day, like banging the door down to get in, the, the young lady was like, I'm not going to speak to her because I need to focus on my mental health. And so then our doc, our physician stepped in and did a lot of work with mom to be like, hey, mom, here's what she's experiencing and here's how you're perpetuating this. And sometimes the families, I mean, the family members or those loved ones are ill themselves and they don't see, they don't see what's happening. Um, and so we do a lot of that education of like, Hey, how do we get mom, dad, grandma, whomever into their own therapy? And then, you know, if they're an individual and Johnny's an individual and then they're doing some family work and they're going to their respective groups or their self-help meetings, there's a gamut of ways in which this works. And we have, um, 60 beds of patients who all have very individual and unique needs. And so it becomes very much like a jigsaw puzzle and just getting all the pieces together. Um, but at the end, it's worth it. We've seen a lot of successes. Um, I think agencies across the nation have seen successes with that integrated psychoeducational family dynamic. Um, there's no way around family involvement. And, and a lot of times that's the first time there's a third party involved. I have, I also have a son who has bipolar disorder and was hospitalized met several, many times as a young, a young person, high school and on. And I, th- it was definitely a turning point once when he was hospitalized to have a social worker sit down with my husband and I, and I was able to say certain things to my son as I walked on eggshells with his mental state of, you know, suicidal and, and, and such, I was able to say things that I couldn't have said otherwise. And it was really a turning point. It was Mm -hmm. a turning point in parenting and the way, the way he was, he was getting whatever he could out of this. So I, I can't speak highly enough of that. I think that is really a huge part of all this is finally getting, you know, it's not easy to get your whole family, especially when your kids are young to some sort of family therapy. And also another thing is that, you know, these kids have to go home the most it's 12 days or something. So I suppose that right away, you have to start working with the family members that are included that are under that roof, because this is going to be a short lived break. And that day of coming home is also scary for the family. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not the usual, oh, yay, someone's coming home from the hospital. Yes. And from many calls, I know from my own experience, that it's the opposite of that most of the time. It's sort of like, okay, you know, on, on Wednesday, yep. so-and-so is coming home. And now what? And how's it going to be? And when they left, it was crisis. So yep. now 12 days later, if not sooner, you know, this is not a euphoric moment. What do you, what do you say to those parents? What advice, any, any good words of advice for, for that scary moment? 
I mean, this, this, the scary moments, I mean, it's always, an, well, how do we take the scariness out of it? I think would be, you know, I would say to them, um, for, for the parents who have done this several times, I think it's, I, I've, I always ask, well, what did, what, what did you do last time? What, what was the situation last time? So an effort not to repeat ourselves. Um, but we also, you know, that family work of, Hey, what's going to be different on your end? Because the families are scared. And a lot of times, so are the kids that are returning because they're like, well, I'm leaving treatment again and hope things are going to be different. However, their experience, which is now their reality because it's happened so many times. And so really it's how, how do we make sure that this discharge plan is followed? And that's really where we kind of hang our hats is like, okay, we've talked to mom, we've talked to Johnny, we've talked, we've been integrated as much as we can. We have a very solid plan as long as everybody follows through on their parts of it. But the biggest stress that we can say is, Hey, you have to follow this charge plan because we, you know, we got an email today. Um, this poor young lady, it was, Oh, I didn't follow through with my medication management. And now there's another psychiatric crisis because of the med lack of medication. And so now it's like, mom's like, she has, she needs to come back. I don't know what to do. She's psychotic and this and that, but really it's okay. Great mom. Bring her back in. Let's assess. We're not guaranteeing, but we'll assess. But then we're like, okay, what do we do to avoid this going forward? So really a lot of that is just talking to them about their fears, because if we don't address why there's a fear there, it's going to continue to be a fear, right? Mm -hmm. If you're afraid of the dark and I don't give you a nightlight, you're going to be afraid of the dark. Um, and so it's kind of like, how, where's that, where does that nightlight come from? Where, how do they carry that with them? How do they utilize it and making sure that they're always plugging it in. And so that fear for everybody's going to be different. Some people um, are fearful because again, what do we call that? Like that mom and I call it mom guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of parents feel guilty, you know, why their kids are in. But if we hold on to those things, that guilt, that shame, that embarrassment, that I shoulda, coulda, woulda, ideas of stuff, that fear will remain intact. And that's really where that family therapy, but even that individual therapy, I, if I have my own issues, I can't put my issues on my child who's coming out of inpatient, I have to expose myself. And so really just trying to echo that to the parents prior to the discharge and say, hey, a little fear is going to be healthy, right? scared keeps you safe a little bit mm -hmm. so um you know just trying to again that education piece but also having them believe in what they've done is the right thing but the aftercare plan in place is also part of the success and let's look towards the success not the impending failure because again you know glass half full or half empty let's really look at it as full let's look at this as a positive thing let's look at this as a next step stepping stone we're going to go forward and it's going to we're going to do well and really trying to engage in those affirmations, right? Um, because a lot of families, you know, that fear keeps them stuck, right? Um, so there's just some of that that we try to combat a little bit here and there. Mine wasn't fear so much. I think um, 12 days is a very limited time to get someone stable on medication when it takes six weeks for well, it to really for sure. kick in. Yeah, that's a huge so, problem. So um, we were really running into a problem that it just wasn't working. And now what? bring them back, don't bring them back, do medication management on our own. I mean, it gets overwhelming. Sure. So, yeah. how do you, I mean, how do you guys handle that? Why, so is it, for, why is it 12 days? Well, again, the, a lot of this, and I, you know, I was just looking at some statistics, like one in 10 youth lack the appropriate insurance that can help them go from that inpatient right. to residential to aftercare, right? Whether that's outpatients, alumni services, individual therapy, and things like that. So insurance is a big driver for that. Um, you know, and I think that's part of the issue. The other issue is that um, there's such limitations for those step-down providers. Um, we, here in Illinois, there's a handful of adolescent residential providers, and a lot of them start at age 12. So those 5 to 11-year-olds that we're seeing and treating so we're, that's exactly what you're, you're, what you're sharing is exactly what those families are experiencing. They don't have that step down level of care. There typically isn't a day program for that age group. Some will squeak an 11 year old in, but you're right. I think insurance plays a very big part in the ongoing care, but so does the limited amount of those residential providers for that age group, but mental health primary, you can go anywhere for substance. You got substance, go ahead and go But that mental health primary. It's, and when we, I don't want to limit this to the state of Illinois because I'm not familiar with the nation's Medicaid policies, 
But here in Illinois, we've seen um, the, their unwillingness to provide insurance coverage for mental health primary residential services. Yes, and, and so it's easier to get services if you have substance abuse, correct. addiction. Yep. So if they have a substance primary, even a dual, right? As long as the mm -hmm. substance, let's say, is the thing that we're dealing with, you can go into some of those residentials as quick as you can. And then the other handful of them are in commercial only. So then we're dealing with this pool of kids who are on Medicaid, who their options are go into inpatient and hope outpatient works. And then when it fails, go back to inpatient. And then we just see this this cycle, right? So uh, what we've been trying to do is link without external psychiatry, um, places that take the Medicaid, especially because insurance, the commercially insured aren't as difficult to get in quick. So we, my team and I spent a lot of time educating community members, working with those community mental health providers, where can we get these kids in fast? And then we're working with another organization who will dispense their meds on site before they leave us. So we're trying to really reduce the barriers in relation to their medication to say, hey, Johnny's got enough to get him from today when he discharges through 30 days, but on week two, he'll still see his other psychiatrist so that that is intact before the meds run out, right? And so we're doing those types of things and also making sure that everybody's leaving with individual therapy appointment because outpatient is great, but sometimes there can be gaps in those services too. But that individual therapist, especially if it's a virtual option, can, can allow that continuation of at least therapeutic eyes on these folks so that they're, we're lessening that someone doesn't know where they're at, what they're doing or what they're experiencing. So, and then we're also doing a lot of follow-up where, hey, we're calling Johnny's mom, we're calling the school, we're calling the places that we put on their discharge plan. Did Johnny show up? As you call after they're after they've been discharged. Yep. How long do you have this? That's interesting. How long do you have that follow up? Two um, weeks or it, a month? It, well, normally the releases are valid for a year. So if you know if I went in on March first, the reality is that release likely could be valid. Um, we'll do at least a week, two weeks, sometimes even a month out. And then if they are in a pretty good track, we'll say, hey, do you need continued follow up? And if not. Um, we, you know, we'll let them go. We're because we're still newer. We're still figuring out. We don't really have an alumni program, but we're working with the families and well, caregivers on what makes sense. We have some that need some higher touch points, but we also are working with those community mental health providers, especially with that Medicaid population who can interface with the the SAS agencies in Illinois. So then SAS takes over. Um, well, there's a little overlap between us and them, but for 90 days post discharge that social worker will continue to follow them and their appointments and their medication management through three months post inpatient discharge um, to we're hoping that the successes will be higher. What is SAS for those yeah. who don't know what that means? Um, it's hold on, let me tell you, because I always mess up the acronym. <laughs> me too. Um, and they will kill me if I mess it up. So, okay, hold on, SAS Illinois. I, have yeah, it right I was just going to Google it, but it's, I see everyone. <laughs> I have it in one of my notes here on my desktop. It's screening assessment and support services, and it's through F, F or HFS. So really it's, um, so there's a lot of different providers throughout this state, but they're social workers who go to the home, they go to the school, they go to the emergency room. If the clients experience a crisis in the park, someone can call the CARES line and they'll dispatch somebody or the police will wait till that individual comes. And it's a safeguard in Illinois that allows any individual who has a Medicaid um, plan, like who, who's covered under Medicaid to have another set of eyes to ensure that the recommendation is appropriate. Um, I don't, probably 40 years ago in the eighties, we had Medicaid kiddos that were stuck in psych facilities for months inappropriately because this, the rates were, the payer rates were really well. I mean, they were, you know, good. So um, because that was happening, they put SAS in place to say, hey, so when Johnny comes in, he has Medicaid, SAS will assess. If SAS uh, agrees with the inpatient, um, then they go inpatient, but you won't get paid unless SAS says there's clinical need for this inpatient level of care. So it assists everybody with ensuring that the kids are really in the right, you know, place. The right place um, for not, the right amount of time. 
Correct, correct. And so then SAS is involved throughout their stay. They're also involved post-discharge, which again, it's just those community supports. And we're really, we're really grateful to have them because not only do they help the kids that we're serving, but we get to problem solve with them, learn their resources, who are they connected with, which helps us for other patients, right? And if they have an, a commercial insurance, we solve those mobile crisis response teams that can and will support. Um, and so SAS typically doesn't get involved with the commercial. However, we've seen that on occasion where the social worker team at the hospital said, you know what, I think we need to get SAS involved because something, we just need that additional level of, you know, eyes on it. So we, we again, as community agencies all work together to try to help the kids in the best way that we can. Boy, that's great. Thank you for explaining that because um, we utilized them many years ago and I know they've changed a lot since then, but mm -hmm. and we have insurance, had insurance, you know, so parents who are listening, you can call them even when your own kids in yep. a crisis in the state yep. of Illinois, um, school can call them. They don't have to be inpatient and then followed up. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Just yep. wanted to point that out for our behind our door family. Lastly, my question is, and I know we're running out of time and this is kind of a big topic, but with the new, I call it an epidemic, epidemic of marijuana, are you seeing a big influx with kids who are struggling with addiction with it? Um, in my experience, no, um, because I think marijuana is one of, marijuana, alcohol are the two that we really see kids experiment with. Um, I think it's become so normalized that like, it's harder now to get kids to say like, oh, that is maybe a problem where 10 years ago, you would bring them in and they, you know, you, let's say part of our assessment was doing your analysis to determine whether or not they were being honest with their, mm -hmm. with their reporting. Right. I think it was a little back then it was, we had more weight on don't smoke marijuana, but now that it's legal, I think we see um, there's, we have a harder time breaking the barrier with parents and kids because it's so normal. Right. Um, so there's, I think we, we're still seeing the trends of addiction within the mental health that we're seeing in our kids. And I think there's also trends. We see there's trends over the summer, let's say, where there's more alcohol. And then we see in the wintertime where there's maybe more marijuana, because again, we look at the difference in seasons up here. There's more outside things to do, right? Parties in the woods, party, mm -hmm. you know, under the bridge, wherever we're going to go. And then in the wintertime. So we, we do see trends, you know, and then you'll see a bunch of that, but then all of a sudden you'll see like, nobody wants to drink, but everybody's having Skittles parties, right? Where everyone's bringing whatever they find in their parents' cabinets and they're throwing it in a bowl and they're having a good old time. And so we see the trend, they change, you know, from year to year, depending, but the ones that we see a lot of are really going to be the marijuana and the alcohol, and then probably benzos and opiates would be in that tertiary group. I think what Julie's saying too, though, because we've had, you know, so many episodes and um, I mean, guests on behind our door, one in particular talked about the strength and the change the in psychosis. marijuana, the psychosis, marijuana She's at, psychosis. you know, we know that there's always these recreational <laughs> drugs lead to addiction or, or can or whatever. And there's, yep. you know, it could have been how many decades ago, just different, you know, yep. same problem, different, different things. But, but now there are studies there, you know, that that this synthetic marijuana and all of, you know, the strength that has changed so much. Do you see, do you see that, that there's, there's psychosis that has set on because of a reaction some, you know, kids are having to that? I think for us at my hospital, we don't see that as much, but when the kids are coming in for psychosis, we have not been able to link their current psychosis with a positive drug screen. However, in my work at other primary substance providers, um, one recently was an adolescent provider, they'll see a lot of their residential admissions and the psych, let's say they're coming out of an emergency room or going to residential because the psychotic behavior isn't always identified as a mental health crisis. Sometimes they think it's just withdrawal. And so I think the primary substance providers would absolutely agree that they're seeing the psychosis because they're being labeled primary substance and not primary mental health. So the primary mental health psychosis we're seeing really is psychosis. We're not seeing, we're seeing some underlying where they might've drank a time or two, but we're not seeing an influx of our kids that are coming in positive for substances or breathalyzing in any which fashion. It's 
and I don't know if it's just the trend or because we're new. Um, you know, that's something that you know, really I could look into and provide you guys maybe with some other statistics from the other long, longer standing facilities. But um, you're, I mean, you're not wrong, Julie, in the, in the sense that there is those strains, especially the bath salts, K2, the synthetic things are leading to those things. Um, I think we're just not seeing them because those folks are in the ER for a day or two and then they're off to the next level of care. Because okay. once once the, the drugs are out of their system and they, you know, given them a PRN or two, we've kind of seen that dissipated where now the ER is not thinking inpatient, they're thinking outpatient or um, or the parents are declining inpatient. We see that I, a lot too. Yeah, I feel like we're missing the mark on that. Like there's a gap. Absolutely. Well, what's interesting, I've always found it interesting, you know, because we go, I go through our inquiries every day and it'll, it'll say, you know, parents decline. And I'm like, wait a second, you're seeing an ER and the staff is sending us this information packet saying, Johnny is at risk to hurt himself or others. And he's telling me he has the means, the modes and the effort. And mom's saying, I'm not going to submit, I'm not going to agree to him going to inpatient, discharge him to me. And so again, you know, there's, that's always concerning to me um, because when you read, when you read what he's experienced and how he's feeling and the things that he's done or tried and the mom's like inpatient, it's not ever going to be inpatient, but sometimes patient is the best place to get them started. Right. Right. That's the parent. That's the whole thing. And I hope that those people are listening to this particular behind our door episode with you, Kayla, because that's the problem. You know, people have to know how beneficial this is. And you've given such a great structure of what you're doing at Montrose Behavioral Health that, you know, there, there are all kinds of listeners on behind our door that are anywhere from parents to um, caregivers, caregivers or to or grandparents or to professionals in the field that are, you know, that are all sharing different parts of the programming. So you've shared so much detail. I hope that goes a long way, like coast to coast all over the place, because it's really great, especially I love your, you know, many parts, but your follow up is so important too. I mean, just to get someone on a path and sort of follow them along a little bit and make sure it's going in the direction it should be. uh, Excellent. Just um, really impressive. Yeah, you guys have learned a lot. Doing well. Yeah, I feel like this is a great learning experience. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one thing that I always remind, you know, because we get staff that have done, been doing this for decades and we have some that have just started. And I always said, listen, not everybody knows what we know. These parents, especially, um, you know, you you can tell everybody, but until you're in that position as the, mm-hmm. the, the non-professional, they don't know what we know. And so I just, you know, it's always that let's impart as much knowledge and wisdom as we can. Education effort supports and non-judgment, right? I think that's one of the biggest things. We talk about the stigma of right. mental health and addiction. I mean, we could talk for hours just on that topic. Yeah. You know, we didn't really touch <laughs> on suicide either, but you know, there's just a lot of things within this field that you know, just kindness goes a long way, but education and kindness can go a really long way because we don't know what we don't know until yeah, we know. The more you know, right. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's what this conversation was about. You took a little bit of, of the scary out of it. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think to the parents, it's not a failing of you as a parent, you that's know? Right. And so, um, and I think it's that generational stuff of like, don't, you don't go anywhere else for help. You come to me. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that. And, that and it's hard to, time. it's hard to accept when anything's wrong with your kids at all. If they have um, two out of three of my kids had, vision issues where they had to get glasses when they were two and I thought well wait a minute you know like you just don't want anything to be mm-hmm. that you have it takes you a minute to yes. get used to that something's wrong and yep. you know mental health issues it's more than a minute it really takes a while to adjust thinking well this can't be but mm-hmm. you and know you can't fix it you can't exactly so um you know I just hope parents are really listening and people that are in that position yes. Right. Yes, there, there's hope, there's help, there's resources, and not everything has to start at the top. Sometimes the middle is just okay. Yeah, very good advice. Just reaching out, you know, Google is a great thing, you know, f- Mental Health Near Me, NAMI, there's a lot of great national right. organizations that can really help and support. Um, yes. School has a lot of great resources too, and I think a lot of parents are also fearful of that. Um, PCPs are becoming more ingrained in this. It's really cool to see 
when they're like, they used to be like, I don't want to deal with that. I tell the audience what a PCP is a, a um, primary care physician. So that doctor that they see maybe for their annual physicals, or when they get the sniffles, those physicians that really normally be like, well, if it's not a you know broken bone or a cough, right. don't come here. Now it's like, oh, they feel depressed. Why don't we try this? Or here we have a psychiatrist on staff. Let's go. You know, really just let's get a, a second opinion. And so it's really interesting to see some of the shifting um, yeah. that we see even in the medical field because medicals they don't deem themselves. Yes, we're all health. But medical and mental health or behavioral health, they kind of see themselves in two different lanes sometimes. And so it's kind of seeing them, you know, kind of crossing that middle line is kind of cool. So yeah. we'll continue to work on it. Um, Chicago is a really dense market. There's 9.3 plus million people in the Chicago, specific to Chicago. Um, and we, you know, we're just going to do our best to try to keep people educated and uh, have the resources available when people need it. Oh, this has been wonderful. Can't yeah. thank you enough for your time. If people want to find you, where do they go? Um, our website is montrosebehavioral.com. Um, M-O-N-T-R-O-S-E behavioral.com. Um, and then our larger corporation is Acadia. So you can go on Acadia Healthcare as well. We have over 250 locations throughout the United States for adults and adolescents, um, specialty programs, residentials, inpatient acute hospitalizations. Um, and again, look us up. You can always hit our you know, call now or info now, whatever makes sense for those families. I'm sure you guys um, are going to put on the podcast all those great ways to reach mental health providers. Thank so you. thank you guys yes. so much for thank having you. us. We're excited about sharing mental health resources. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that info. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.